Welcome back to the Casual Heresy Podcast. I'm Spencer. And I'm Michael. And we're here with a special friend. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. John Ellis. This is John. He's... My father. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> In a very heretical sense. Yes. At least not in an orthodox sense. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Um, Spencer, do you want to lead us in an opening prayer? Yeah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us with your presence. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to have John on the podcast. Thank you for this opportunity to encounter you in discussion and fellowship. We ask that you lay your grace upon our listeners and upon John as we have a fruitful discussion of whatever happens. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it kind of goes in line with what we did our last episode about. Um, we we're thinking about doing an episode about this, and we we're like, you know, we want to have John on for this because I know nothing about it. I just have very unstructured opinions that have no bearing whatsoever. So, basically, I think religious education, at least in this country, but I would assume in most countries, as far as like a parish function seems to be basically broken beyond repair as far as my limited experience of that um i don't know what your religious education experience was like spencer mediocre i mean it's hard to say in some sense we said the word limited experience so many times last episode, <laughs> but um, I guess it's two words, but I'm going to say it's one because heretical. That's one word now. If you're typing a transcript of this because you're that kind of listener, that's one word. But yeah, um, I mean, I went to public school growing up. Um, formation was just, I don't know, a kid that didn't want to be there, but some points wanted to be there and I don't know, really did not grasp the understanding of some of the church teachings um, to the extent that I have now, which makes sense. But I think there were, based on what other people learn at these ages, I was like, I was, I don't know, it was subpar. <laughs> And where did you do religious education? Was this at, at your parish? Mm-hmm. At my home parish. Growing and, up, yeah. and what grades? I don't know. Everything from like first communion to through confirmation. And then what grade did you guys do confirmation? Were you? Junior. Junior. Mm-hmm. Did you do something special for confirmation years, the year that you did not do in previous? Or was it essentially the same structure for confirmation, just oriented towards confirmation? Yeah, I think it was basically the same thing. Gotcha. 
and Michael, your experience was different because you you were on the accelerated track. Is that yeah, right? Basically, yeah. So I was, yeah, homeschool track. <laughs> I uh, we had a local parish priest who, kind of, I'm guessing, kind of just looked through the, the, uh, what is that called, class lists for RE, and was like, wow, these kids that are doing all the altar serving aren't in RE. Um, and so he was like, so, and he knew us all pretty well. So he asked all the Catholic homeschoolers who were in high school, if they wanted to just have basically tutoring sessions with him an hour and a half, twice a week. And that's what we did all the way through high school. Um, and up until that point, I basically had no RE at all other okay. than things my parents told me, which were often geared towards apologetics because my parents are both converts. So oh, sure. I, I had some basic apologetics and then I had that and were those like um intra-christian apologetics so uh the truth of the catholic church versus protestantism and orthodoxy or were they like uh atheist apologetics um, mostly intra-christian gotcha. yep i don't know if that's a phrase i just that oh was, well to, I'm, I'm using it now yeah, it is okay. it is now okay um so yeah so i i i did not experience parish re but i look at i did teach parish re mm. I taught, uh, I think it was 8th grade, 7th or 8th grade, and I remember distinctly that every week, just about, I was given coloring pages to give to these 15-year-olds. Oh, sure. And I was like, this is not, I'm supposed to teach them about Easter and the Triduum. I'm like, this isn't going to help them understand, they're capable of understanding this at a deeper level than Mm. color and the cross. So, I was wondering, basically... I have a couple thoughts about this. Do you think that that is something that needs bottom up to be fixed or top down to be fixed? Because I could see a scenario where a bishop like writes a curriculum and makes it mandatory for all of the parishes in his diocese. I can also see a scenario where that's very, very bad mm-hmm. and doesn't end well for the parishes in the diocese. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, what do you think fixed would look like? I don't know that either. Okay. <laughs> I just I just know it's it's broken. <laughs> okay. What does broken look like? Uh, so broken. So look, coloring pages for fifteen year olds. Coloring pages for fifteen. So that's yep. just Ed. So there's just fifteen year olds being in eighth grade. That's another problem. <laughs> I was homeschooled, man. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> so thirteen-year-olds probably something yeah, like that. Yeah, Twelve yeah. and thirteen-year-olds. Okay. But fair enough. Yeah. 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 So, um, basically, when I do interact with people through a youth ministry standpoint, mm-hmm. just being at the parish, they just seem very poorly catechized. Mm-hmm. And I think wasn't this the point mm-hmm. of this to have at least a basic? beyond being able to say the creed mm-hmm. i mean and know what it means maybe mm-hmm. even then not all the time so again i think similarly to to our discussion about young adult ministries i guess when i when i think of it as broken i think of what's what is the point mm-hmm. if the point is to catechize people so that they can be catholics then it being fixed would look like not as many people getting confirmed and then never going to church again. Sure. 
which I know part of that you can't control, but part of it you could like maybe like make it less excruciating for them to be there, you know, like make it interesting because I part think I remember my parish confirmation class and that was a nightmare. We wrote our sins on a piece of paper and burned it in a coffee can. It's very, very informative. <laughs> and <laughs> we did something like that too. Also very heretical, to be fair. <laughs> but but so like that doesn't I just feel like that's not actually doing what is intended by at least what the words religious education imply they're not I think it's trying to be like symbolic of what like the trinity like the holy spirit and like God absolving you of your sins so like oh see your sins burn Oh, they're sure. gone. Yeah. They've disintegrated. Um, but I think learning about the mass more would be big because then if you're in religious education as a Catholic, you'll ask, why am I, why am I going to church if all I need to do is learn and believe in God? Like, if you learned about the Mass and everything that it entails, then it would be, you you could dig a lot deeper in your spiritual life and in prayer. That makes sense. So, um, you know, I think an initial thought that I have is that, now again, we intentionally did this. I have, I have no prep, so I'm now going to miscite a bunch of statistics here. But Awesome. Yep. <laughs> but I think in general, when you look at um, just general pedagogy and uh, like school programs and funding and government programs and everything, when you look at the efficacy of programs, the biggest determining factor, as I recall, is essentially parental involvement. And so, in other words, if you, and so I'm talking about just like education, just normal education, not religious education. And so it's kind of like, I think in Freakonomics or one of those, there was kind of one of those funny things where the strongest correlation that they found between grades and something in the home, I don't remember exactly what it was, but the, the gist of it was that the number of books in a home is predictive or has a lot more predictive power than the other things that we're looking at of how well a student will do. Not whether or not they're readers, none of that. It was just this, the number of books in a home can be predictive of uh, academic achievement. Um, so that's kind of like one of those kind of funny, you know, kind of stats um, that I'm sure there's a lot more going on behind that or that, you know, there clearly isn't a correlation between book counting and academic achievement, but there's presumably something going on in that home that if they're investing money in books, there's something else going on in the culture of that home. And, and uh, essentially, what we, I think what we do know about education statistics is that it really doesn't matter how much money you throw at the problem, the core issue broadly speaking, for populations is related to the investment of the parents in the kids' education, that that is going to be the biggest determining factor. So you can dump, you know, how much ever additional funds into per-student spending on whatever it might be, and that's never going to overcome parents that don't prioritize education and work in education with their kids. And I think that that's obviously, that seems to, I think when you hear that, um, I don't know how accurate I've reflected any of that, but I think that that's about right. And I think that that kind of intuitively probably rings true. Of course, you do spend a fair amount of time in school, but at least for, I think, boys, generally speaking, most of that time 
spent trying to hover right below the line of getting in trouble, but trying to get away with as much as you can before you cross that line. So you're not really learning things at school per se. There's probably some level of that, but um, that it's probably going to be that one-on-one -on -one time or family time that you have that, that helps fix those things. And I would think that that is, I would have to assume that that is even more so the case for religious education, because uh, now you're actually talking about formative education than just sort of, you know, whatever, informative education. And so at that formative level, I think it probably doesn't matter what's happening, almost doesn't matter what's happening within the parish. And again, individual cases are always different. People's personalities are different. People's in, all those are the things, I think, notwithstanding when you're talking about a population or the you know all of a parish or the kids in a parish, I think that the biggest factor is going to be parental involvement and parental commitment in those things. And it almost doesn't matter what you do at the parish level because you'll never be able to overcome that if you're handicapped there. That'd be my thought, initial thought. What are your thoughts on that? I would say that makes a lot of sense because the one time we were doing edge at the parish, which is, it's, um, it's a branch of life team for middle schoolers. Um, and we had a parent, parent night. And sorry, real quick for listeners at home, life teen is like, um, edge for high schoolers. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, and we had a parent night and, uh, our youth minister at the time, he led the small group of kids. And since I was the volunteer there, I, I led the small group of parents cause I basically had no say in the matter. Um, um, and what was most striking to me was that half of the parents were actually grandparents. Oh, sure. And it was made very clear that they were there. They were the ones taking these kids to RE because their parents didn't care at all. And the grandparents were kind of, it, it was important, but like they were like more upset that they didn't care than the why don't they care or like the why are we here? They're just upset that people don't care, which I get. It's upsetting, mm -hmm. but it's also a symptom of the problem, not the problem mm -hmm. itself, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's like done out of habit more, it, it, especially like that's what, how I feel about it in my family. As far as I know, both sides of grandparents grew up Catholic. My parents grew up Catholic. I grew up Catholic. Mm -hmm. So it could turn into this, this is just what we do sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, I think you hit it right on the nose about parental um, involvement. I don't know the statistics on it, but the father going to mass and, like, uh, having a spiritual life affects the kids, like, infinite, significantly yeah, more, significantly yeah. more than the mother which is really interesting and just the the need for the father in the household in our society and culture is is the necessity that we need to fix even what we're talking about now <laughs> the interesting thing about that statistic that i have heard that i would just like to add um is that um it's I don't know the actual numbers, but it is striking how it's kind of a theme here. Yeah, <laughs> we we didn't we didn't look at the statistics, but we remember them. Um, uh, yeah, so like if your if your father went to church, you are like it's somewhere in the ballpark of like eighty to ninety percent more likely to go to church. 
where and how you go to church is in the same strength determined by where and how your mother went to church. So like your dad could have been a Catholic and your mom could have been a Lutheran. But like, if you go at all is more, and this is total pop psychology. So that, you know, but whether you go is more determined by your dad, where you go is more determined by your mom. So yeah, just something to add to that. I mean, again, no statistics, not even trying to say that there's a statistic on it, but just from personal experience, I don't see a lot of women in RE, uh, adult, or, uh, whatever, RCIA, because they're converting to their husband's faith. Yep. For the most part, the, yep. the men are more motivated. Uh, so yeah, I could definitely see that the, the mm-hmm. kind of setting the stage there. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that's very, uh, that is very interesting. Um, Sorry. Uh, do you I do you appreciate the my Sasquatch breaths on the podcast sometimes? Because sometimes I just get tired of taking yeah. them out because oh, they'll sure. be like you could even look at it on here like you can see me breathing into the mic every single time we record. And sometimes I take it out, but sometimes it's like right while he's saying something. Oh sure. <laughs> so I guess would you agree? that RE in parishes, at least here, is broken? Or would you disagree with that? So I have a couple other, yeah, a couple thoughts around that. So one is, I think that nominal Christians get a bad rap, and I don't entirely understand why, because, well, I, well, how do I, let me rephrase that better. I think that nominal Christians is used as a pejorative by awesome Christians, and I don't think it should be, because first of all, we know Think about the distribution of population and interests, or the distribution uh, within a population of interests and personality. So we know that some personalities are going to have a, a tendency to gravitate towards religion as a, you know, and all, all sorts of other factors, but family history, um, intelligence, um, you know, there'd be all sorts of other things that would go into the cocktail that produces someone who's going to tend to be uh, a kind of a faith-based person. So we already know that. So you would have to assume just kind of, you know, the way populations work, that most people are not going to be particularly faith-based, right? I mean, right, so if you have like a mean, half of people are going to be less than that, typically. You know what I mean? So we need to think about that. And I think what we had in society for a long time was a big share of the population that are not particularly faith-based. They don't use faith as a primary category or as a primary filter through which they experience things. But they were still brought up in the faith and had that structure in place so that during those times in life where when we are all forced to religion, so times of suffering, times of questioning, those sorts of things, they had all that structure already there. And so I think nominal Christianity is super critical to a vibrant faith because then you have enough people, you kind of have this critical mass situation. Um, so that'd be one thing. And I think that as a society, as a society, we've obviously lost a lot of that nominal Christians. And I think to some degree, that's because we've been spending how many ever years talking about how terrible nominal Christian, well, I shouldn't, I, I need to obviously be careful about the way I say that, but, um, 
there is probably an evangelical reason to, to emphasize the importance of not being a nominal Christian. I think that that is true. But there's obviously an evangelical reason to acknowledge the importance of nominal Christians. And I think I'm probably casting a really wide net when I'm saying nominal. And so maybe some people have that, the bottom 5%, the creasters or whatever in mind when they're saying nominal. And that maybe that isn't what I'm talking about. Um, but I think nominal Christianity is an important thing. And as the society loses that, then that becomes less and less your go-to method of handling stress and suffering. And so I think that that's part of it. I would say there's also a lot less day-to-day stress and suffering. So even those people who maybe would have been an active nominal Christian, that kind of that middle group that I'm talking about, probably not as necessary because they might you might go years or decades in your life without those real catastrophic type suffering, that real either catastrophic suffering or that day-to-day on the verge type of embodied suffering that I think has made up so much of, of human history. So I think that that's probably part of it. So I think that the nominal Christian plays an important role that I think that the lack of day-to-day suffering plays a role in that. Um, I would say that there's also probably a little bit less catastrophic suffering. And so all of those things I think that would have played an important part in uh, that obviously sounds tacky. All of those things that drive you to the need to acknowledge the spiritual dimension or transcendent dimension or that push you into the transcendent dimension to assuage the pain of um, you know, embodied life, I think those things become deprioritized or as not as, a con- not as much of a constant. We also, I think, have more means for more people of escaping that. So now we do have forms of entertainment or forms of amusement that are available to many more people than would have been available, you know, maybe only to a small percentage of people, you know, even a hundred years ago, those sorts of things. So I think all of those things create a population that depends less on their religion. And then we have, therefore, we have less people that are nominally religious, and therefore we have less of a shared way of sort of structuring those catastrophic or day-to-day uh, sufferings. Um, and I think that that's just, if you assume that the basic faith of a people group is distributed somewhat, you know, kind of like a normal distribution, and that just less and less of life inherently demands transcendent experiences um, or, or uh, transcendent focus, then I think you will naturally see just a decrement of religiosity I think that that's unavoidable, and I don't think that you could really fix it. You know, if you go to, like, the Baltimore Catechism days of religious education, I think that that, to the extent that it worked at all, it probably worked in a very different type of society, and I think that that really wouldn't work anymore either. It's not like people loved that at the time either, so I think that wouldn't be a solution that would work, Um, and I think it just it makes less sense now. What are your thoughts on that? Or do you think I'm wildly off the mark? Does it make sense? Does it, it unrelated? No, I think this this is interesting. So basically, cultural Catholicism is not a bad thing. And we need to not think of it like... Kind of like these people are already in a better place than they could be you could think of it that way like like these people are yeah they're just doing this to get confirmed but they are actually getting confirmed which is better than 
what 79 percent of the country at this point so like that's yeah that's an interesting thought because i never i had never thought of it that way yeah i mean you could i mean no analogy is going to work here and i'm just making stuff up as we're talking this is not something i've thought about but i think that you wouldn't think cultural literacy is bad because a lot of people don't read for a hobby or something like that and there's probably again there's always going to be a, a distribution there there's going to be a peak of people that probably do a fair amount of reading and there's going to be a long tail of people that don't do a ton of reading but literacy as a culture that not being this rarefied thing is a very very good thing for the culture at, at large um, and then that's always available to all the literate you know people even even though they're not um, and I think Again, that's a rough analogy, you know, but um, and I probably have to, you know, I'm not thinking that through really well. But I would say similarly, having the Catholic faith or the Christian faith as part of the culture at large as a common reference point. So, I mean, to me, it, it kind of comes down to if you're not an inherently religious person, and I think, again, we have to at least acknowledge that half of people are going to be below average in terms of religiosity. I mean, assuming that there's any, you know, physical or personality or whatever dimension to it, I think that that's a pretty un, you know, whatever. That's not intended to be a controversial claim. So for at least for, for half of people, you're going to have to think of religion a little bit differently than this major part of their, you know, a part of their devotion. And the thing that brings us over into devotion would be these real experiences of the transcendent and of the divine. And unfortunately, a lot of that happens. Sometimes the transcendent obviously occurs through beauty and through aesthetic experiences that are overwhelming. That is certainly part of it, but a lot of it is the sort of the suffering that we experience. And if you don't have the structure in place already for those transcendent demanding experiences or for, those, for that suffering to move you towards or dig into your religiosity, if that structure isn't there, well, then you're just kind of screwed. Because um, you have, so even if you do have this experience First of all, you probably won't frame it that way. You won't see it as, a, as an opportunity. You won't see the divine in it or the divine as the way out, right? So if we think about a religiosity as essentially that hope that appears when all hope is gone, right? If, so if that's our core definition of what religion is, well, that's not going to be, you know, it can be there for you, but it's harder to grasp onto if you don't have any words or ideas or concepts to apply to that hope that bubbles up in hopelessness. Um, so that's a bad thing. Does, does that make sense? Um, so I think that that would be that would be one reason that just sort of a generic cultural Catholicism is a very good thing, um, and then yeah, I, I think that you can't. I don't think that you can think of religious education as trying to serve the half of people that are already basically religious. I think you right because they're going to get that itch scratched. So it'd be more how does religious education work for the half that are not dispositionally or culturally religious. That would be my thought. Muffler, what do you think? It's deep. Mariana's trench. No. Um, no, I think, yeah, that's... I can get behind that because, yeah, everybody's standing like dead ducks waiting for somebody to... You know, waiting for Jesus to embrace them, whether they know it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's, like, no outreach for that. It's just they they whip us with their whip, and we whip them with our whip from a distance in debates and stuff like that. 
but it doesn't hit many people personally probably there's no intimate conversation like one-on-one personal core breaking um connections happening it's just hate almost Mm -hmm. so yeah so so um Um, my gosh. Um, uh, so I definitely never thought of it that way that, um, some people are likely to never go to religion except for in times of crisis. Um, or in times of joy. More in times of joy. Births, weddings. Right. Yep. Yep. Big, yep. big, important things. events. Big things. Um, and if you don't, even if that's the only thing they do, if you don't give them some context for that in something like RE, they are not going to know how to do that. Whereas if then something does happen, they'll remember this, I don't know, church thing, you know, like this is what we do, you know, or their family did something once that was this or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think about anything that, anything that is, transcendent at that um at the at that super sensible level so anything that we would experience of the divine um is happening that happens at a spiritual level or a you like an atomistic sense in the in the intellect doesn't itself that itself cannot be embodied and so that means it can't be physically felt it can't be experienced right because all that stuff uses brains and nerves and our, our guts um and it can't, and then that would also mean, well, it can't be put into words, right? Because words are going to be those sort of concepts, which, again, that's all using sort of our mechanisms of the, the physical mechanisms. So anything that we do experience of the transcendent is spiritual, and it is super sensible. It is not articulatable. But I think that if you give people religious framing, when it is, in order for it to be experienced, it has to be embodied. And then when it's embodied and thought about and reflected upon and that's the only way we can experience those things you are then again even if you're just nominally christian or just have this sort of cursory appreciation for religion you would have or catholicism or whatever you now have the structure within you to make sense of that in a way that is profitable otherwise you just have these nondescript experiences that you then embody and reflect upon without any structure for them and so then now those are lost does that or could be potentially lost it'd be harder to mine value from them thank you for joining us for part one of our conversation with john tune in next week for part two from life cheers to you god bless peace